Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with our newly minted relationship with Saint Corporate Training. After 18 months and hundreds of conversations with the leaders, innovators, and the movers and shakers in our city, two things have become abundantly clear. The future of work has arrived, and it always has been all about the people. So whether you're an individual looking to upskill or an organization looking to reskill an entire division, SAIT has the team, the curriculum, and more importantly, the advisors to partner with you to build what you need to adapt for the road ahead. Do yourself a favor and take the time to learn a little bit more. Check them out at www.sait.ca slash corporate training. And more importantly, give them a call, have a consultation, and find out what SAIT can do for you. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to Miss Lauren Vaughn. How are you, Lauren? I'm good. How are you? I am fantastic. Uh, we are Calgary small town strikes again. I've uh, recently realized g- leading up to this podcast that we share the same office building. Then, and I think that that is just Calgary in a nutshell right there. Would you say? I would say so, especially uh, we've shared it for more than a year now. <laughs> totally. And I just realized it the other day, I'm going to blame COVID completely for not being, not being in my office, but a great, cool little building. And you guys, is that a retail space as well, as well as office, like both? Yeah, it's all of the above. Shipping, logistics, office, little retail portion. Oh, very cool. So, well, yeah. we'll get into it and then we'll let people know how they can find you. But you're CEO and founder of The Upside and Reup Technology. So, as we joked, rather than me giving the long diatribe, what tell us about The Upside and Reup and then we'll get into your story from there. Wonderful. How long do you want this intro? 30 seconds or three hours? Uh, somewhere in the middle. I like your bookends. Okay. I'd say more than, thir- okay. yeah, definitely more than 30 seconds, but less than maybe four. I think, I think Mayor Nenshi had the longest, was a 12 minute monologue. And then before he finally gave me a chance to speak. So if you can okay. keep well, it underneath well, that, you'll be, you're pretty good. You're going to be good. You. I won't out Nenshi you. So, okay, perfect. Done. We um, got it. It's a date. <laughs> so uh, I went to UFC. Let's start there. So I did my BCom in Calgary and throughout that experience, I worked for a Canadian fashion designer named Paul Hardy. So that's where I really got my first intro into the fashion world. And I was an intern for Paul. And while I didn't uh, get paid then, I, I think interns get paid now. So good for them. But what I did get, <laughs> back, back in the good, back in the good old days, <laughs> back in the good old days. Yeah. Um, I did get to travel to all the fashion weeks. So I went to Paris and London, Toronto, New York, and I fell in love with Paris. So as one would, I bought a one-way ticket with all of my money I saved as a server. Um, to, <laughs> nice. And I moved to Paris. <laughs> nice. um, so, so that was really, you know, I would say my, my entry into my career and adulthood and really experiencing the fashion industry. And so that's the Rosie, that's the Livion Rose. Then I got to Paris. I spoke no French. I had only a little bit of money. I couldn't get a job. Um, and, but what I really did do is I fell in love with the resale industry. So it was through being there on a budget and, and having taste beyond my means that really forced me to, uh, to really experience that industry. And uh, after all of the, those things came to a head and I, I ran out of money and I couldn't get a job and my French still sucked, I moved back to Canada. And it was at that time and through that experience that I would say, you know, this idea of the upside and now re technology really started to grow. Fantastic. So what I'm hearing is you don't like to do things the easy way is what I'm, I'm, I'm if I'm going to pick a theme out of what you just shared. <laughs> Interning <laughs> that, for free in the fashion theme. industry, moving to Paris on a budget, not knowing anyone, landing. I've been to Paris as a tourist and it can be, it could, it could be a, it's amazing. I love Paris. I'm a raving fan of it, but it can be a little rough around the, like for sure. It can be, um, what's the word I'm, what's the word I'm looking for? It could wear, probably wear you down and spit you out pretty quick. I'm going to guess. Yeah. And I was, and I was in the rough around the edges parts of Paris. Like, let's be real. I was not in, uh, you know, Saint-Germain-de-Prix. I was, I was in, uh, some of the outer arrondissement with, um, 
yeah, it was a learning experience as a, as a young woman and not knowing anyone. Very cool. I'm curious about the, the upside, uh, sorry, the upside in like the resale industry. You know, I've, of course, there's women's consignment stores here and you see them. Was it just also a bigger market? Just was it a whole different scene there? Did you get, I'm always curious when entrepreneurs come back home, but they went somewhere and said, oh, wow, this is like five or 10 years ahead of where we're at. I can take from that and be inspired by that. Was I'm just, I'm kind of just projecting is, was that any yeah. kind of the learning of what you saw and, and what was possible? And then obviously technology. I think what I saw to your point is um, it was just a different way of thinking about consignment. You know, there was still uh, and is still, but it's changing very quickly, quickly, a, a kind of negative connotation around consignment and why you consign. Either you had to, um, whether it was a financial implication and, and not really taking into where I found in Europe, it just, it wasn't that. It was really the thrill of the hunt. It was finding unique pieces. It was finding pieces you couldn't just get in the store. So I think it was taking that and coming home and really seeing it hadn't shifted here. And there, you know, this isn't even pulling into this massive sustainability and circular economy side that we've seen grow, but really just, um, you know, the consumer behavior around the why. And so for me, that was really interesting. And at the same time, I started listening to and reading all these articles about companies in the U.S. starting to raise venture and grow really quickly to um, to really shake up an industry that that it was long outdated. So taking the good old consignment shop that maybe smells a bit musty, maybe it's, you know, that image, I think it's easy to conjure up and saying, well, what can technology do? And like, just curious, fashion background, but I'm always curious when I meet, what I'm hearing is maybe not, you weren't a developer, you weren't a programmer, you weren't a full stack. You're a fitness person that said, or sorry, um, uh, a fashion person that said, hey, you know what? Technology can really solve this problem. Like, how did you get from there to the tech side of it? That's always something that to me feels, can feel like a barrier. Oh, hindsight is twenty twenty. <laughs> <laughs> Did I touch on? Yeah, yeah. was this a real yeah, thing? Yeah, that, that's a great point, Tyler. And I wish we had this conversation six years ago. Um, <laughs> well, common you know, sense would have ruined it then. You wouldn't be where you are. So no, come on. A hundred percent would have ruined it. So what I did initially, uh, you know, full disclosure, is I called around to, I Googled, you know, developers in Calgary. And I called around and I, I pitched everyone what I wanted to build and what I was looking to build. And I went with the second cheapest guy because you never go with the cheapest guy because that would be a that would be a bad business decision. Yep. <laughs> um, and from there, it was a series of some unfortunate uh, events and some that got us to where where we needed to be. I will say the one learning I've had, though, is whatever a company is presenting tech or not tech company on the front end, you know, it's usually a bit more pasted together on the back end. So so I do, uh, you know, I had this very ideal like this idea of what it would be and it would be this perfect experience and and i don't think it's ever like that you know so i think i'm a bit more you know aware now but however yeah it was not an easy build and not having a tech co-founder so you know the the hindsight would have been if i knew i wanted to be a technology company from the get-go is to really seek out that that partner and that co-founder who had the tech background that i was lacking yeah, it's someone they could look under the hood and say, oh, wait a second, I don't think that should have been that or that should be there. And that's tough as a non-technical leader. Back in 2015, when you got, when you started this, what was it like in Calgary? Like, well, you know, we talk about now when we've got this evolving ecosystem, we can kind of get into where things maybe have, have where tech and that ecosystem has a lot more legs to it and a lot more ability to help itself. Where maybe, what was it like five years ago? Did you feel like you were kind of on your own or did you stumble into a group of people that were able to help you fairly quickly? Yeah, no, I didn't stumble into anything at all. Uh, it was just me in my basement okay, uh, with some interns. Awesome. And, and uh, yeah, no, it was, you know, I think there was a two side in any marketplace, you need the supply and you need, you need the demand, right? And so um, really building and focusing on that supply was our, was our first step, 
to, to understand that we didn't want people to come to our platform and there'd be three things up there. So seeing this market that needed to be, you know, was just ripe for, for kind of shaking up and changing and, but then also understanding how do you focus on supply and then how do you create demand? And I think, you know, unfortunately demand isn't generally built organically unless you can really get this network effect business. So the capital it would take to build the demand, I would say was my biggest understatement going into it. I kind of thought you build it and they will come. Um, I think many entrepreneurs experience it. So how did you, so curious on that supply side, how did you go out and like, obviously you're bootstrapping this, you're funding it on your own. How did you like, kind of what were the first moves? Like, and did you kind of test this idea and did you do any kind of beta that way to be like, Hey, is this even a good idea? Or were you like, no, I'm bought in. This is going to work the whole time. I think because we had seen what was happening in the U S and it was just so disadvantageous then. And I mean, that was on the dollar it was like 85, 86 cents. And we've never seen that since. Uh, by the time you got you received your items as a Canadian consumer. So I think I knew if it's working there, there's got to be something here that is that makes more sense for the Canadian consumer. Um, But yeah, definitely litmus tested a lot of people and a lot of sometimes the wrong people, right. And I think that's, you know, one of those things as an entrepreneur is is make sure that the audience you're testing is one that, um, that would care or be your customer, because if they wouldn't, it doesn't mean there's not a market there, but you're just might be asking the wrong people. Well, that's the risk. Everyone's everyone's quick to say, "Yeah, I would totally use this." When it, but when it comes time to putting down hard dollars, would they still be that? Would it still be real? Yeah, and that's the sure. hardest and thing with with gathering that information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to your point, I think it's the quote. It's one of my favorites. It's like, if you need money, ask for advice, and if you need advice, ask for money. So just be aware of you know what you're going out. I like that. I've not heard that exactly laid out like that, but that's actually quite powerful. Actually, I'm gonna have to yeah. reek. So if you need advice ask for money. And if you need money, ask for advice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I know I got that, which makes perfect sense. I just never heard it so clearly laid out. So you're in Calgary, you're starting to build up. You're, you're right. You can't go online with a, any type of a retail experience if you don't have the product. So how did you fill that? Like, and was that, was it, did you have to reteach your, 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 not your target audience that this is a new way to do it versus dropping it off at the, was it two things like, no, don't just take it to the corner consignment store, but also, Hey, putting things on consignment is actually a great way to like, like you said, did, did you have to overcome the stigma as well as create new behavior? Yeah, I think a bit of both. I mean, naturally, the stigma has been shifting and naturally the behavior has been shifting over time. And we've just kind of been riding, riding that wave and, and are now kind of at this precipice of a massive consumer movement and consumer behavior shifting and COVID and all of these kind of big macro things that are, are leaning in our direction. But at the time, to your point, you know, I was asking friends and friends and friends of like, can I sell your stuff? But like, you know, just really anyone we knew that had had stuff that they'd be willing to kind of set. And then we did lots of promotions. So, um, you know, offering gift cards to certain places if, if you consigned a certain amount of items. So really just used any kind of grassroots and bootstrapping ways that we could to start at our circle and get the product in. Well, different than a traditional retail environment, you didn't have to buy the product, right? That's the consignment model. So you had other yeah. models to you. So basically you were able to kind of find some dollars to kind of incentivize that behavior. So exactly. how long did it take from this? Or I'm getting way in the weeds here. I'm just so curious okay. how it all went from the idea to going out and literally, you know, begging, borrowing, getting people to, to bring product to you to be able to do it. How long did that take before you could say, okay, we've got enough that we can reasonably and respectfully go to market and start bringing potential consumers in? Yeah. So if I look back at the timeline, you know, I, I was contacting developers around January 2015. And then we had a launch party November 2015. And then um, so early 2016 was when we we went live with the site and went to market. Okay. So about, so about 12 months. Yeah. 
And was that very much focused? Like you're here in Calgary, but this isn't. This is obviously focused on like anywhere. Or was this very much grassroots Calgary initiative? Like customers were here, and and your supply side was here as well. Yeah, as we when we started, for sure. Um, now I would say it's probably fifty fifty for Calgary, and then outside of Calgary, okay. um, maybe maybe sixty forty means sixty percent of our our sellers are still outside of Calgary. Um, but we really focused on on it, that kind of in Calgary just to get started and, and get the doors open and relied on our community there and then have grown it over the years. And then, you know, not having a big budget and, and understanding we didn't do any digital marketing for, I think, the first two years. And we just relied on word of mouth. So so with that said, of course, you know, outside of someone stumbling upon us um, by Googling, you know, Consignment ca- Canada um, and, and coming to our website, it was really through word of mouth and community. So providing that amazing, so and how much of your business was obviously you're creating this, this two-sided kind of, you said marketplace, but I guess I would only imagine so much of your iteration was around really ensuring that you were creating this amazing customer experience back to word of mouth. You only get word of mouth if, you know, XYZ happens kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think the idea that we wanted to make it really seamless for customers too. So as a seller, you could ship for free. You, You, we created a portal where you went on, you submitted your items, a way bill popped up. It was generated, uh, you printed it off, affixed it to your package and took it to any Canada post. So really focusing on that customer journey, especially on the supply side, was really important to us early on. So removing friction at every chance you, you could get. Yeah. How about, and I'm just curious, let's jump to the obvious one. What about returns? You know, you order something and it doesn't fit. And I've done consignment shopping, whether it's for Halloween or for fun or whatever. Yeah. And you, part of the whole experience is going there and trying this on and finding that, you know, find back in the corner kind of thing. But that's a very tactile, experiential experience. And now you're supplanting that onto online, which obviously we're all getting more comfortable with dealing with. But was that a barrier for you guys right away? Or was the infrastructure of the way the marketplace worked? Did it just, was it? did it allow for that to happen? Yeah. And we made a decision early on to allow returns. So we allow returns for site credit and that's trying to find that, that middle ground of understanding that if you're ordering online, you have to have some kind of remedy if it doesn't fit. Right. But also we are selling gently loved or pre-owned things. So, so what would, and it, it seemed that it's, it's worked well for everyone. Uh, you know, of course we like put a tag in the most awkward place so that you couldn't wear it and then, and then hopefully return it. So it hasn't been a huge issue, but because we've really focused on that customer service side of things and what we want to, like you said, to, to provide that experience that is going to be the difference between maybe your traditional store that didn't really focus on the customer, or the customer uh, experience to, to how we're going to elevate that. In terms of speaking of your customer, did you guys do a lot of segmentation in terms of like, we're going to go with a little bit more of a premium? Was it more middle of the space? Just curious if that's evolved and identifying, cause you know, I know certain stores around town where like, oh, that's more of a premium consignment shop and you would go there for, to look for certain things. Did you guys play a pretty broad in terms of customer segmentation or have you narrowed it down to a very specific, like kind of vertical inside the consignment space? Yeah, we're, I'd say we're more on the specific side. I mean, we accept over 200 brands right now, so it's not like yeah. it's, but it, it is premium brands. And the reason we we went that way is just because um, they retain their value the best, right? So, mm-hmm. so really moving away from that mass market fast fashion, because it is really essentially throwaway, even from, from the dollar value back that you can expect to see. So, so for us, we knew that if we were going to invest the technology and the time and everything to, to really make a goal of it, that it had, there had to be some value on the tail end for, for mm-hmm. our sellers. Well, and I heard your comment about, you know, I'm in Paris with no money, but really, like really good taste. So, hmm, I was curious how much that carried through from your own passion <laughs> around uh, to, to fashion and where yeah. value really can be found versus, like you said, throw, throw away fashion. For sure. 
So now let's get into the nitty gritty. Um, funding and the infrastructure that you ran into, like from you made the comment about bootstrapping in my basement with a couple interns. What's been the journey? How's the learning been? Like kind of take us on that side of, you know, calling developers is one thing, paying for it is something else, right? <laughs> yeah, very much. And, you know, when you talked about when did you start the business, I can picture it's one of those moments where, you know, I was on my computer, on my e-transfer page, and I think I sat there, it seemed like an eternity after my, you know, my daughter had went to bed, just like, oh, like, this is the moment, right? Because once you transfer those thousands, you know, a few thousand dollars, there's not really any going back. Um, so really, you know, standing on the edge of the cliff. And thinking, are, are you entrepreneurial or are you now about to be an entrepreneur? There's a big difference between those two words. <laughs> Huge difference, right? And so, yeah, you know, I think that stands out. And then after that, it was just, you know, I think a journey of, of understanding we were growing and there was something there and we had, you know, a product market fit and we had customers and we had people really excited, but not really knowing where to go from there. And then once yeah. you get into the capital, uh, you know, what the availability and what's out there, realizing what you can, what you can even access and what you can't, depending on the type of business you are and whether that's angel or venture or friends and family. Um, you know, I think, I was so naive to the fact of the business I was building and what that would look like for the funding that you would, I would need. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so yeah. So what was that like? Or I don't know how detailed you want to get in. I love kind of the play by play. Cause it's such an easy thing to look in from the outside and go, yeah, you're going to have to raise money. And, Oh, you see this series B or this, you know, the news loves to just hit it with a title and then talk about it. Like it was easy and it happened, but I've talked to enough startups and also venture capital side. Like it's a big chasm to, to cross. And there's a lot of no's in that journey. <laughs> Yeah. And, and a lot of knows, I think, you know, if you're just aware early on what you would be eligible for and not when you go into, at least your eyes are open, right? Like, how are you, I don't, I didn't even think about like, how are you going to fund this business? Like once the bank of Lauren ran out, like that wasn't even a thought in my mind, you know, where in hindsight, just being like eyes open to, you should, you should ask yourself that. <laughs> so, you know, and then we got to the stage where we were growing and we were showing all this traction, but we weren't profitable but you know, then what? And I think so for that, it was, you know, that's where we really got into these. And I started, so then I was like, we need capital. Fast forward. I know we need capital. We've got something here. Um, we're growing, you know, we've got new users. We have, you know, users like our repurchase rate is good, kind of starting to understand a lot of these terms. Um, and, and then really it was that journey there where we started raising capital in a friends and family round because that's what you got to okay. do first. Because if anyone's going to believe you or buy into your, your vision, it's going to be the people closest to you. And, you know, other investors need to see that too, because that's the hardest money to lose. So, so generally I'd say you have to do your money first, whatever you have, and then anyone else's that's really close to you, um, as the trajectory of, of raising capital. And so that was, a, that was our first step was friends and family. And from you, for you, for you personally, from a psycho, like psychological perspective, was that a barrier? Was that like, I, I, I don't like to overlook the human side of like asking for money can be really uncomfortable for some people. Some entrepreneurs are just like, no, we're doing it. It's like, you got to jump on board, like ground floor opportunity. Other people, like it's a big challenge. Like I'm passionate about my idea, but oh, wow, I forgot about this whole, I need to ask people for money part. I don't like that. I'm just curious for you. Was that, was that, was that a journey or was that, was that uh, easy for you? No, it was extremely difficult to your point. I was like, I like this idea. I like this business. And then it was like, oh no, but I don't want to do that. I'm like, how uncomfortable is that? I would never, you know, like my mother was a teacher her whole life. I, I can't ask her for money that I could possibly lose. You know, lose. like it, it's yeah. just, that's a whole different level of something that you sign. You didn't, you don't really realize you sign up for, but if you're going to go down this path of needing outside capital, you've signed up for it. Um, 
So, so that was extremely difficult and it still is, you know, and it's been a, it's been a personal journey that I think you're right. I see these entrepreneurs and, um, it seems like they're so, they're so good at it and it's easy. And I always wonder, you know, is it a journey for them too? Or am I the only one who, who really struggled with this in the beginning? And, and it, what really helped me get through it is finding mentors and people who have done it. And, and, uh, because you have to get over the idea that they're buying, there's a huge opportunity for them too. Right. And I think when you first start raising capital, it's such a, you're coming from a one down position and it's almost a scarcity and you need, you need something from them. Right. And I think the minute that you can gain enough confidence in your business and yourself, and that's a journey, um, to be able to show what an opportunity it is for those investors that you start to see a shift and you start to see people, um, really willing and wanting to kind of buy in and support you. But those early investors are going to be people that believe in you. Right. And and that's really where I've, I've learned, you know, one of our biggest investors is a, uh, involved in a fund in Calgary. And I often think about when she initially invested in us and I'm like, I wouldn't have invested in us. That's a, I do love the psychology of like, like feeling like you're hat in hand versus going, no, I'm actually giving you a really good opportunity. And just the psychology of that and the confidence and the self-belief when, you know, the, the, the looks calm on the surface, but underneath the, the feet are paddling a hundred million, like a hundred mile an hour kind of thing. There's a lot. I, I, it's good not to forget that we're still a bunch of humans having this experience and it can, a lot of us aren't raised being taught how to ask for money or even talk about money for that matter. And it sounds so trivial, but in business, it's a requirement. It's a base level skill. <laughs> 100%. And it, you know, the base, it's different when you're talking to a bank or when you're talking to, uh, you know, your friends and family. From the friends and family round, did you, have you, did you, were you able to access, like, was there any type of incentives? Was there any type of government programs? Were the banks, would they play ball with you? Like, how did it go? You've got their friends and family, gave you some life for a little while, but then you moved to that next round. How did that transition and were, was there a support network there? Or did you get a lot of, like, again, back to the closed doors of, oh yeah, come see us once you're making money kind of thing. Yeah. And I think to your point, like the banks and friends and family, it's two totally different. It's very easy to sit across a desk from someone you don't know and, and ask for money at a bank. It's definitely less so uh, to do to do that with people that you you know you trust and you care about and you would never want anything to happen to their their hard earned capital. Right. And and so I think along that journey, once we close the friends and family, you know, I briefly mentioned we had uh, an investor who came on early on who has a family office in Alberta, but also is a part of a fund here that's been really uh, influential in in our success to date and continue to to be so because it, it really runs out quite quickly you know if you you need a an angel or if there's no funds like if you're not a venture fundable company and you're a technology company the banks like they don't really like to touch you you know they like to host entrepreneurial yeah. events and they like to uh, support entrepreneurs and they like to have you know little meet and greets when you could before covid but uh, it's it's quite difficult so so I think for us, you know, we, we, BDC did support us, um, you know, but okay. other than that, we, we, we did hit some, some major walls with our options and, and moving forward. And curious, just from, since we're speaking candidly, like the, the banks put out a big story about we want to support and we want to be part and like, we'll just talk about institutional money. Is it more of a story than reality when you're, when you are a tech startup and you don't have land and building and title and all the things that they look for in that traditional, what can we take if this doesn't work out scenario, basically to be blunt? Yeah, 100%. Like, I mean, even every company credit card we had up until now was under my personal credit bureau. Like you cannot yeah. even get a company credit card unless to your point, you've got major assets, you're profitable. So, so there's such a huge risk, you know, from, from the entrepreneur's standpoint, 
at every stage, you know, you're personally guaranteeing everything. Um, and it's, it's, so it's really taxing. Oh yes. So, I, I, I've, I've, I've shared in your journey. Yes, absolutely. I yes. think I still have my name on some personal guarantees floating around it, totally. lease or whatever, <laughs> yeah. whatever it is. Absolutely. For sure. And there's yeah. an which, aspect which of which I, I, I get yeah. it from their perspective. They they want to mitigate their risk, I, of yeah. course. Like you know, I, mean, I don't not understand, but sometimes the story and the tagline or the buzzy ad about how we want to support startups doesn't always hold up. And you're not the first one who's come on the show and maybe implied that or said it flat out. Actually, yeah, yeah. No, and I would I would say I would second that that it is it's a nice tagline. But when you so so I think that just all leads back to like what is your plan? How are you going to grow this company? And who's going to advocate for you and who's going to believe in you from an early stage? Because you're really going to need those people and that mentor group around you to to help get to those milestones to then unlock capital. And like you said, you know, you kind of read about like ClearBank. That's awesome. You know, like congratulations to them, their team at ClearCo. Now they just raised a $100 million round of financing and put them over a $2 billion valuation. But there's so many steps before that and those milestones yeah. you need to unlock to continue to access more capital. And I think for me as an entrepreneur... It helped so much to think about it as milestones that unlock a door. And if you can really okay. break down what those need to be, uh, and maybe it's, and that's how investors think of it too, is if you're going to raise a pre-seed seed series A, there are milestones that have to, you have to hit before you're going to be able to even raise that round. And so what are those milestones and how do you get there for me has really been helpful. And was that a specific mentor? Like, again, how did you go about, because there's people going, okay, they're, they're got their pencil ready. So how do I go about learning that if I'm on the outside of that? Like, is, is it just trial by fire? Which sounds pretty, it sounds hard. <laughs> yeah, partially, you know, I think momentum is an entrepreneur's best friend. So if you can, uh, you know, and I listened to Michelle Zaitlin uh, from Cloudfair, who is a phenomenal Canadian entrepreneur, and she uh, has lived in the Valley now for a long time. But you know, she said, momentum is your best friend. You know, when we started and they're now public, uh, you, we didn't have revenue, but what were some KPIs and what were some, so some, you know, some metrics that they could continually go back to investors and, and show that momentum. So to your point, it's, you know, you need to kind of trial by fire and you need to show the momentum. And I've learned now that investors don't expect you to have all the answers or do everything right, but they do want to see that you're doing something and you're doing it and you're learning and you're iterating and continuing to kind of push the needle forward. So I think that's so important when entrepreneurs are thinking about, okay, how, like I'm ready to get started and then surround yourself by either other entrepreneurs who are a bit further along than you. Like I have those, you know, Marie from Sampler uh, in Toronto, a phenomenal Canadian tech startup. I'm constantly, you know, and she has those people, you know, um, asking, what did you do in this situation? And at what time did you do this? And can you give me some advice? And I think to have the people that have seen around the corner from the investor standpoint, but also, you know, the people that are in the ring with you is so crucial to to being able to help you push forward. Well, and like you said, not only for advice, but the relationships in the door, like nothing much in life happens without a relationship, right? And if you can get that warm introduction and all of a sudden, you know, I was talking to someone the other day and they said, Calgary's great because there is very much this tribe mentality unless you're on the outside of it. And then all of a sudden it can feel like you don't know who to call and you can't kind of get in. But once you are, you know, I did think it's one of Calgary's superpowers, the willingness to usually help each other. So has that been your experience? Like you said, you have, you know, Toronto. And obviously when you think about the broader network, how has it been in Calgary and as some of, as have those doors and those mentors, have you been able to find them here or have you had to look up, look beyond our borders? No, I, you know, we had, and to your point, Calgary is really great for that, but I think anywhere I've, I've found, you know, um, you know, I just got off a sales call this morning with a publicly traded company in the U S of someone that I ran into in 2017 in Los Angeles. And he's now the president of this company. And so for me, what I've been good at and what my superpower has been, has been creating those connections and, uh, 
continuing to foster them and, and ask, right? People are so willing. Uh, I find if you just ask to, to help, they people, every wall want to help each other. You know, I've, there's very few people I could probably could even, couldn't even count with one hand that if I had an ask from, like you said, an entrepreneur or a connector or someone to be able to, to open a door, people will do it. And, and so I think to your point, Calgary's great for that. And then it's continuing to foster those relationships. You know, if I think about prior to, you know, even meeting our first investor that came from, you know, an agency we had contracting for technology who said, oh, I think there's these women who want to start this fund. I'll introduce you. And it was one of her partners. And it took almost a year to get that investment in the door. And she's continued to be one of our, um, my biggest champion and, and advocates. But at any point in that journey, I could have said, this is too much work and I don't want to do it or I don't want to keep this connection. And it's those constant touch points, right? And momentum and and getting to know each other. You know, I think the one of the biggest, most detrimental things to an entrepreneur is seeing the dragon's dens and um, things like that, because that's just not how it works. And the amount of people that still think like, oh, I'm going to pitch an investor and they're going to write a check. It's just like, you know, you're... It's, not reality. Re- reality TV doesn't tend to be a little light on the reality and heavy on the TV, but right. For sure. I don't and know why everyone you, knows that about Real Housewives and not the business shows. So. <laughs> so I've had people be like, oh no, I've, I've watched, I've watched Dragons in all the time. I, I, I know exactly how it works. I'm like, well, I don't think it's exactly how it works, but that's cool. Um, and are you, are you referring to the, the 51 and the group yes, over there? Yes. So the, the group yeah, I, I, this show is all about blatantly plugging people. So like, yeah, I yeah. want, if you haven't heard of them, you should, because they're doing some awesome work. And you know, I, I had, I had Judy on, Judy, Fairburn on, I think she was like my third or fourth interview when I first started the show. And she's like, Hey Tyler, stay tuned. We've got something really cool coming. And she goes the 51 and she's like, just, you know, it's new. And wow. What they've been able to do with that in a very short period of time, I think hats off to them and everyone that gets a big, it's a big infrastructure, big ecosystem they've created. It's impressive. Definitely. And I think getting involved, you know, if it's not the 51, there are others, you know, I, and there's courses and things. I just finished a private equity and governance course taught through the university of Calgary and their executive leadership program. I cannot tell you how, uh, helpful that was. And even the people in the class, you know, we've got these other, you know, phenomenal uh, venture people that have le- really led the way for Calgary. You know, you have Brad Zumalt in the class. Like, so so all of these connections, I think you just have to stay open to learning and, and connecting and asking people who, who know more than you, because it's, it's, you know, you're never done learning. And every day, I think I've figured out something in my business or in my in my fundraising journey. And the next day I'm like, I know nothing. I know absolutely nothing. <laughs> Humility awaits around every corner. Really I does. guess, what do you say besides just do it? Um, <laughs> I'm so busy working on my business. I don't have time to go out and kind of nurture all those relationships. I've had people talk about that. I've had other people have been like, forget, get over yourself. It's just part of it. You have to do it. There's, there's literally no option. Which is kind of what I'm reading between the lines here and you say. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. You know, I was, I was just, while you're asking that, trying to think back if I've ever been in a position where for me, they've always been hand in hand, you know, it's always been constantly connecting and communicating and finding out if I'm working on my business in a certain aspect, but I know this one person I met two years ago at this place that would, would know so much about that. I'm going to connect with them. And, and so I think, uh, for me, they've always been hand in hand. I don't think I could separate them to say like, I'm too busy doing one or the other. And, you know, as the founder and CEO, and as you continue to grow, that really is going to be your job, right? Is, is momentum and, and making sure you have the right people in the right seats and connecting with investors and, and creating that, that, you know, that moving forward and that capital, like the fundraising is constantly in your mind. And I, I used to joke, I'm like, Oh, we finished our friends and family. I don't have to fundraise. And now I've just accepted that I will forever be fundraising. And I think as any startup founder, there's no <laughs> end. So either you, and that was like, you asked, was it comfortable for you? It wasn't. But I had to have one of those long, hard look in the mirror days where it was like, get comfortable or pick a different career because 
you can't hate what you're doing. Yeah. You can't hate what you're doing and you you can't be pulling teeth all the time and you you can't feel like you're forced to do it. Um, so, so either how do you get comfortable and, and learn to love it and, and perfect your art or how do you just pick something else to do? I, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. You can't beat a joint it kind of, kind of mindset. Yeah, what, what, sure. sta- what stage are, what stage are you at now in terms of if it, you know, you did friends and family, like where have you progressed to kind of on your, on your, on your stage gates, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I think that's an, and we're kind of in a middle stage gate. So what we did is we did friends and family, uh, round. And then I think that leads well into, I, you know, been really focused on how we're solving some of these bigger picture frictions in the resale industry. And I was on a, a webinar, one of the great things about COVID, right? Webinars, you can kind of learn at any time from, from really smart people. And it was a webinar put on by a few venture funds and specializing in marketplaces. And what they really talked about was creating new users. And the example they gave was Airbnb. Uh, shared vacation rental existed long before Airbnb. It's just no one did it. It took Airbnb coming in to now everyone does it. So for me, I've always been focused, like the upside has been such a great learning ground for the resale industry. And I have really got to see how it's grown and shifted. And we've had all of these trends that continue to, to say that this is a way forward, um, including, you know, through COVID and, and retail really taking themselves out at the knees and really exposing some of some of the things that are not uh, sustainable in the long term, or, you know, they haven't been for a long time. So for me, that really led to creating a new technology. And so that's where it'll loop back to funding <laughs> um, shortly here is, you know, end of 2020, we developed Reup, and Reup is uh, an API integrated software that partners with retailers and brands to really get customers involved at the time of first purchase. So so that was something. Oh, oh, for, there's yeah. there's the link between. Okay, I was curious. That was good. We looped back around. Took us a bit, but okay, I was curious what reup was. But now I understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really played into this opportunity, knowing that uh, ESG mandate is huge, right? And it's really big for retailers alike, and and seeing the growth in the circular economy. So how do we get a customer to be excited and be involved then? Because that's where I think we're going to see the removal of friction. So if you know, I've had this pair of shoes or jackets sitting in my closet for a year or two years at that point it's just like it's more effort than it's worth to probably get it out but if we can start to partner with them in creative ways to get users involved um, I think there's something pretty exciting there and, and big picture so that's where uh, we are developing reup we have developed reup we're in beta but coinciding with that we're also fundraising um, for this technology and the upside uh, to continue to prove out this business model so I would say if I had to pick a stage we're pre-revenue for re-up. So we would be a pre-seed, I believe. Um, so looking to, yeah, you know, we're just actually closing on on some money now to be able to prove out, you know, our assumptions as well as to kind of pre-establish a, a revenue model and then be able to scale and go to market. I really appreciate that you worked the, that the, the the ESG came into our conversation. It's not something I've been having this conversation a lot. I did not see it coming up in the conversation today. I'll be super candid. <laughs> but when you look at the long reach of ESG, to think about how efficient we are, how are we reusing, how are we not being wasteful, it's so interesting. From a, that, that that came up, I did not imagine you and I were going to reference ESG today when we we're on this call <laughs> at all. Not even a little bit. Yeah, snuck it in there. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's interesting to hear how much it's permeating because in this town, it's really easy to hear ESG from the perspective of the emission side and what's happening in the in greenhouse gases and so on and so forth. But more and more, it's like, it's getting slipped in by people like yourself on calls where I'm like, did you just reference ESG in here? I'm like, okay, it, the broad reach of that and how all-encompassing an like, umbrella that term is and how many industries it's affecting and more importantly, how consumers are reacting to companies that are or not playing in, playing well with those three, 
those three letters. I think it's really interesting. Exactly. Well, and I mean, you think, and I know we're so familiar with that term because of where we're based, but the fashion and textile industry is the second largest global polluter and retailers are, you know, it's a, it's a must now, not like a nice to have. So how are we, you know, creating this idea where we're looping in the circular economy to your point to keep items out of landfill, to have them reused. Uh, you know, if we know that 80% of people have barely, you know, have worn one third of their closet in the last year, um, you know, what, it, what does that look like for, for being able to have those things? And, you know, there's rental economies, there's circular economies, but, but there's all these ideas of a shared economy that is just really has, you know, is a much better way forward as part of people's uh, everyday ha- habits and consumer behavior. Well, I love looking at anything from a cultural perspective, like, and I don't mean the culture of your company, but what cultural trends are happening that your company can dovetail into? It's way easier to ride a wave than it is to create one when it comes to like big cultural movements. And unless you're a global brand and you're like, okay, we're going to create a trend in a certain direction, but usually the trend gets started and then people jump on board to hear about that trend towards everything you just talked about. And as we get more comfortable, how long, how many years ago where we wouldn't stay in a stranger's house, we wouldn't get in a car with someone we didn't know. Like I remember when it was like, Bank banking online. I'll never do that. I'll always go to the bank teller. Like these like broad sweeping statements. They're not that old. They're only like eight to 10 years old, these statements of what we will never do. And now I couldn't imagine not driving across the world and staying in a stranger's house. It's a great experience. Exactly. I, actually, I look forward to post COVID so I can actually do that again. Exactly. Yeah. You're now looking forward to staying in a stranger's house. I, yes, I am. Absolutely. Enthous- enthusiastically. So yeah. Lauren, I, I, I don't have to ask this, but I want to ask it because it comes up and I've had some guests on. I've had, you know, Shannon Peston on. She's talked about it. Has there been any bear barriers in the world of finance. And of course, I've talked to the ladies from the 51 and like financial feminism. Has that ever been an issue for you being a woman looking out raising capital? I hope it's never been, but I know that there's a reality that it is for some people for sure. Yes. I think it permeates everything, you know, that you do when you're starting to raise capital and and down to who you're asking. Right. And I think you just have to be aware that as um, when you're going into these conversations, just any biases that, that may be already pre-existing, and just make sure you're talking to the right people. You know, I could have saved myself a lot of time early on um, you know, if you're speaking to someone whose only investment mandate is oil and gas and he's, you know, uh, pale male and stale, no offense, Tyler, you're not, yeah, yeah. you're not stale. That's, that's okay, Lauren. I, I opened the can of worms, please. This is a conversation. This is a podcast about realities. Yeah. So you're not going to get, what, so, what, what was it? What was it against? You want, you want to say that again? Pale male pale, and male stale. And is stale. that what? Yeah. Oh goodness! Ouch! But hey, we've we, we've earned it. We've we've we. Are the per- I'm not going to speak for the we because I don't associate myself with that we. But I get what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I think you know we've even seen and Venture has published this that as a woman raising capital, men tend to get more optimistic, broad questions like, "How big can this company be? What are you going to do?" And these very forward-thinking, broad-based, um, goal-reaching targets where women are going to get a lot more. Um, pessimistic and security questions like what are you well how are you going to avoid this and what's going to happen when this happens and so you even just and like that it's out there you know we've, we've seen that that's just the way that unconscious biases lead into questions with men versus women and and I didn't make it up it's just it's just the way it is so I think there's a lot happening and changing and shifting but it's a hundred percent you know I think as a as a woman raising capital something that you're going to come up against. And are you running into any kind of environments where you're seeing more of a blended approach? Like is where you're seeing investor groups have balanced out between men and women? Because the smart thing is to have all those perspectives at the table so that you, if I'm a fund of some kind, I'm going to make better investments. Because again, don't, don't surround your team with all the same people that think the same way or else you all run off the cliff together kind of mindset. Are we getting it? Are we, are we getting better at, at it? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, and, and I'm raising capital right now. So I've had a lot of conversations with funds and you are seeing a lot more diversity at the table. Um, you know, and it'll, it's got to continue to go that way for your, 
you know, it's how you create good business is to your point. If you're all running off the same cliff together because you all think the exact same, you know, nothing good is going to come of that. No, a cognitive bias is a real disease for sure. I think we're I think we're slowly becoming. But the argument is we, we're not really truly aware of our of the cognitive biases that are really tripping us up. Right, the yeah. superficial ones. You're oh no, that's a bias. It's the ones you 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 defend that is the probably the blind spots. For sure, and I think you know as <laughs> a female, being human. totally. And as you're starting up, you know, I still you always want to start with the female funds. You know, you've got the 51 Backbone Angels is an angel group that just started out of Ottawa. So it's all female. There's 10 Shopify employees, early Shopify employees that have started a fund and co-invest nice. together. Um, you know, so really- sure, what, and what's, the, what's, what's the name of that? Backbone Angels. Backbone Angels. Cool. That's what I love and about the show. I hear about things. I'm like, great. I've not heard of that before. That's great. Backbone Angels out of Ottawa. That's such a great example of what can happen when you have that massive success is you get all that spinoff. And in Calgary, I think we're on that path right now. We're just, you know, we've got the Benevides and we've got Cement on their path right now. There's a lot of stories where I think we're a couple cycles away from some interesting spinoffs, which I'm pretty excited for about sure. from, a, from a pro-Calgary, you know, ecosystem perspective. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, to your point on my, my class today, that's what we we're talking about, right, is how do we get some examples of the local talent and the experience that, that has happened in our backyard? Because there's a there's a lot of exciting stuff happening and we're seeing this trajectory for, you know, some companies that are coming up and I mean, Solium is a couple of years ago now, but, but really yep. how do we, how do we learn from that and how as an ecosystem do we move forward? And tell the story. I'm doing my, I'm doing my best part. Yes, I can to try and tell those stories. That's my, I'm on it. That's, that was the impetus of the podcast. A friend of mine reached out to me. He's like, I am talking to all these people and they're all talking about the same problems and same situation, but none of them are talking to each other. Like what's going on? We're just way too kind of head down ass up, which is a very Canadian Alberta also thing to do. Like I'm just doing the work. I'll, that's why I asked about the, how do you make sure that you spend equal time on, you know, you don't just spend all your time squirreling away in your basement <laughs> and then you emerge and nobody knows who you are. So you're actually starting from, starting from scratch. Yeah. Hey, any, ever been any issues or any roadblocks with being located in Calgary? Not, not necessarily the fashion hub or re up to recently the technology hub of Canada. So, has that ever been an issue for you or you're in Calgary and that's where your roots are and that's what it is? Yeah, I think they're, you know, now I think though we've become so digital and global that it's actually less so probably now than it was Yeah. Um, where, you know, before there was a mentality for sure, like in Canada, if you're not in Toronto or if you're not in LA or the Valley, you know, you're going to have a hard time raising capital or getting to those investors. But I think we've really seen those barriers shifted and drop. Um, you know, and we'll see over the next kind of year how things change, but it's been pretty easy from a digital standpoint to, to have those conversations and, and get a hold of people. And with your dev team and with your kind of the technology side of your business, are they located here as well? Or are you able to do can access talent kind of anywhere for that? Yeah. So we have one uh, full-time dev located here and then we actually have some in India um, and we're looking to okay. bring on uh, another full-time product person here as well. Okay. And how's uh, how has that been for you? Like you've now got your person internally to kind of steward things, but how has it been kind of over offshoring like that? Has that gone been seamless? Cause there's so many different stories of like, it goes amazing to it goes terrible. Like I've heard so many different versions of, of that strategy. Yeah. And kind of somewhere in the middle, it's went both. And, you know, for us really, yeah. excuse me, trying to find like that great talent and that, you know, I was lucky enough to be connected with uh, a fellow female founder who is based in India um, to, to help weed through that. Cause it's, you oh, know, awesome. it's okay. yeah. And so for me, that was, that was really helpful and useful because it is overwhelming and how, where do you even start? So I think, you know, and I've heard there's a, you know, quite a few services as well out there that you can kind of use if you know, you need something specifically built and offshore it. Mm -hmm. uh, but knowing we really wanted to have someone who is full-time dev and helping us to drive the product forward in Canada, just that we could work quite closely with. 
No, interesting. Again, I, Lauren, it sounds like you're very, you, you go out of your way to be very well connected, which sounds like it's paid off every, every step of the way. Yeah. Our full-time dev, we worked, he was a developer at um, an agency we worked with years ago and he's awesome, you know? So it's just creating those relationships and connections and, and keeping the door open. So, so when the time comes and, and it's, it's worked out really well for us. I appreciate, yeah, just every, everything in life is about relationships, who yeah. you know and how you know them. So road ahead, how do you see things run for your six years, you know, six years and four months in, according to LinkedIn, to be precise. Yeah. And you, obviously you got this new thing kind of brewing with, uh, with re-up technology, the upside is going. Uh, like what's, what's, what do you see the next kind of six months to six years just for less blue sky a little bit? Yeah, I think it's going to be quite a wild ride. You know, when I think of the six <laughs> years and four months that got me to this point, I don't think I would have been ready at any point, but now to do it. And, and I'm really looking forward to to going down this new path. And we are going down a venture path, right? Which we hadn't up until this point. So so ask me a year from now. Um, but, but, you know, really excited for the opportunity that's, like you said, all of these trends and the wave is here. And we, we just want to ride the wave and, and hopefully be another homegrown, successful tech story. That's awesome. And has COVID been sounding like, again, I know it's affected a lot of people negatively, but in your business, sounds like COVID has accelerated where we were already headed in terms of like behavior, cultural behavior. Yeah. And it has, right. I mean, we were all online before, um, actually, and we built out uh, a space in, in Calgary, a 4,500 square foot shipping and logistics center offices, our first retail concept, uh, as a part of that. And so that was a, that was an interesting and scary time to be doing it, but you know, we were 40% up in 2020 from 2019. And I think anytime we, you know, are in these kind of periods of, economic uncertainty we really see these either off price or or these creative ways people are always going to shop they're always going to consume but but maybe they're not doing it the traditional way of walking into the, de- the department store and checking out full price so so how do we be a part of that movement and and the get, shift get a little a little more motivated to turn that closet into cash kind of yeah, mindset right <laughs> for sure so curious with your location so i'm jumping up and then down yeah. back into the weeds <laughs> okay. again i think i did um, that without with with the, with the location that you have does that more of an omni channel like i go online and i see that it was actually in calgary and i'm like oh well i'm here i'm just going to drive down cuz i want to get out of the house and go do that experience is it that way or do they are they kind of run as like retails here but then online is here are they how joined are they versus versus integrated yeah, so they're completely joined. So yes, you could do that if you saw something online go down. Um, so they're totally joined. And we're just operating. I mean, we have quite a large warehouse right now. And so we're just operating from that one location. Um, and then we'll see kind of what happens here in the next six months or so with COVID and everything for our next one. Such an advantage of, of being purpose-built from the get-go where you've seen yeah. so many legacy businesses that have been around forever have this online presence that's completely disconnected. But to the customer, that's just annoying. Let's yeah. be honest. Like you're all one business to me. And the fact you're now, no, no, that's our online business. I'm like, no, 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 that doesn't, doesn't make sense to me versus yeah. building it right. The first time kind of coming, coming out of the gate. I appreciate that. Uh, Lauren, really insightful. Thanks for your honesty today. And your, your candor of like, this is how it is. This is the roller coaster that it's been. I love the honesty of, you know, it's so easy to glamorize with a few headlines and so-and-so raised millions and like, the what went on behind the scenes is I think what gets, uh, can be maybe ignorance is bliss sometimes. Like you said, you jump in not actually knowing, but having mentors and people out there. So are you at a place now where you're able to mentor and support? And like, I'm assuming you seem like somebody who's giving back to the community. You just, I'm just getting that vibe. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's really important for me is now, you know, that I've, I've been on the other side and I'm, I have those mentors and I would love to mentor people because it's, if I could have answered some of those questions early on that, took me a lot longer to, or were difficult to come, to come to that answer, it would have saved me so much time and headache and heartache, right? So um, I know people pour their blood, sweat and tears into their business. And so if there's anything, you know, in the community, and, and I work with the 51 with their uh, up and coming entrepreneurs too, to, to get them to a point of where if they're not now, they, you know, some advice on how to be fundable. Um, so that's something I'm, I'm really passionate about and has really come out for me in this journey. 
How to be fundable. That's your, that's your, that's your webinar right there. That's a, no, it's not a bad I, love, I love a good catchy title, how to be fundable. What's the best way for people if they want to get a hold of you? Is it LinkedIn? Is obviously go check out the website. What's the best ways for people to get in touch? Yeah. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. The website is uh, shoptheupside.com. We're on Instagram at shoptheupside. Um, so I think any of those ways you'd be able to find me. Excellent. Well, I encourage people to reach out and go, I'm going to, I've, I've checked out your store, but now I know you're in my building, literally. So in the <laughs> corner of McLeod and town for anybody's, I know it's not even that. I walked by the name like, oh, wow. And anyways, I love the small town we live in sometimes. So I will be coming by to check it out and uh, make sure to tell my wife about it. But um, thank you. So do you could do any men's consignment at all? Or is it only women? It's only women. Sorry. <sighs> guys get really screwed in the consignment side, but I know that's a whole other thing, but yeah, yeah I know is. like a good, a good men's consignment store. Like I would go check that out. I wouldn't yeah. even, I wouldn't even hesitate actually, but Lauren, it was really nice talking to you. Congratulations on your success and, uh, and all your hard work and keep it up. It's an awesome yeah. story. Thank you. Thanks for the time. That was a lot of fun. 